0: We'll hear argument first this morning in Case Zero Six Seventeen Seventeen, Richland Security Service versus Chertoff. Mr. Wolfman.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the Federal Circuit affirmed an award of attorney fees under the Equal Access to Justice Act, or EAJA, to petitioner Richland Security Service Company, but it denied Richland an award for paralegal services at market rates, on the ground that statutory attorney fees do not include work done by paralegals. The Federal Circuit was wrong because, as this Court has explained, the statutory term attorney fees — and now I'm quoting — takes into account the work not only of attorneys, but others whose labor contributes to the work product for which an attorney bills her client." End quote. Employing that reasoning, the Court held in Missouri v. Jenkins that paralegal fees are compensable at market rates as attorney fees. Under 42 U.S.C., Section 1988. The question in this case is whether there's any reason EJA should be interpreted differently. The answer is no, and indeed, the only potentially relevant difference between the two statutes that EJA requires fees to be awarded at prevailing market rates, and Section 1988 requires only that fees be reasonable provides stronger support for market based recovery of paralegal fees under EJA. Than it would under
2: Section 1988. Mr. Wolfman, what about the cap that's not present in 1988 and is present in Egypt? Well, well, Justice Ginsburg,
1: that really is, when we get down to it, what the the government's argument boils down to. And I think the cap is irrelevant for, for two reasons, both of which are important. First, and, and let, me, let me first state the argument, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you the answers. The, the argument that the, the government posits is, is taking the lead from the Federal Circuit is that paralegal services can't be compensable at market rates under EJA because then paralegal services would be fully or largely compensable, while lawyers' fees, to the extent that they exceed the cap, would not be. And again, there are two answers to that. First, the argument incorrectly looks at EJA from today's perspective. When lawyers' rates generally exceed the fee cap,
3: excuse me. The uh, the uh, paralegals' rates would also be subject to the to the cap. They Absolutely, couldn't go above the cap.
1: That, that, there's no question about that because because your honor, they are attorney's fees. That's our submission. But the, the, the problem with looking at it from the current vantage point, which is what the Federal Circuit essentially did, is that at the time Egypt was enacted, most lawyers yeah, — I just
4: ask you on the last point. Does the government agree that the, the paralegal fees are subject to the cap?
1: Well, the, the government would issue? certainly agree that if they're attorney's fees, they are subject to the cap. They're not willing to pay above the cap for any fee. Indeed would insist. Yes, indeed, Your Honor. But anyway, but, they,
4: but the, they do not agree with the, the bottom line that they are subject to the cap.
1: Well, what 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 they believe the government they, they, believes, I'm sure they, they can explain this better than I can. But what the government's position is is that they are like an out-of-pocket expense, right? Reimbursable only at the cost to the lawyer. That's an interesting question, Your Honor, because one could one could posit a situation 20, 30 years out from now if Asia were not. Uh, 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 amended where even the cost to the lawyer could exceed the cap. So in, in a way, the government's argument sort of collapses upon itself. Uh, we, we, our submission is they're all attorney's fees and they're all, uh, subject to the cap. But let me but go. You,
5: is, isn't that one of the problems with your argument? Because there's something very strange about, uh, capping, um, paralegal fees at the same amount that that they would cap uh, a lawyer's fees for, regardless of what that amount is and when they were setting
1: it? Well, again, that's — that's — I I took to be Justice Ginsburg's uh, uh, question, and let me try to answer it. First, as I say, by — by positing that's a strange situation, which — which we don't agree with, but even assuming that it's a strange situation, again, it looks at the situation from today's perspective. Not at the time.
5: No, I'm looking at it from the, the, the perspective of the, the original enactment. Uh, on your theory, at that moment, these fees were legal fees, uh, were uh, attorney uh, fees, uh, and they were capped at the same amount that a lawyer's time was capped at. And that's just
1: odd. The, well, I don't believe it's odd. That, and, for again, for two reasons. At that point, you again, have to take the perspective of where they were at. The, the lawyer's fees and paralegal fees were really capped at the same point, but all those fees were arrayed, by and large, under the cap, so that there would be paralegal fees at a relatively low rate, a junior associates at a, a, a modest rate, and the senior partners closer to the cap, Agent, by fees and large.
3: There. I mean, the, the problem exists whether or not you uh, you, you make uh, paralegal fees, attorney's fees, because agent fees are also subject to the same cap. That is true. The and Agents it, were were paid— a good deal less than it.
1: That, that is true. That, that is another argument that could be made. Agents who, who are, are individuals that are qualified by an administrative agency, to, in, in essence, to practice law without the supervision of a lawyer, um, they are also allowed fees under the administrative part of Egypt, but not under Section 2412, which is the court part of Egypt. You, you I mean, began, I, and
6: it's not just because of my notepad, but because I'm interested. You told Justice Ginberg there are two reasons yes. why the government's cap is wrong, and I, I'm I'm not even sure you finished the first. What were the two reasons?
1: I would love that opportunity, Your Honor. The first, again, is, and let me, come back to this if I didn't uh, get it out completely, which is that, again, it's looking at the, at, at the problem, if there is one, from the, uh, the, the current-day perspective. But what you had at the time, by and large, was that lawyers and paralegal rates would be arrayed below the cap. It's just not something that would have been within the contemplation of Congress. But, but me let me ask on that figure,
4: <laughs> supposing at the time the statute was enacted, uh, 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 paralegal fees were not generally c- treated as lawyers' fees, but rather were as disbursements. Well, Would that make a difference?
1: That might have made a difference, but that was not the case, Your Honor. In fact, what the court pointed out in Missouri versus Jenkins, which was 1989, nine years later, paralegal fees, it appeared to, to be that they were separately billed in about three quarters of all law firms. In 1980, it was probably fewer. There was a transition going on. But let me give you. The, the court's response to that problem in, in Missouri versus Jenkins to the, to the extent that it is a problem. And what the court said was, whether they're separately billed or not, they were subsumed within the lawyer's rates, like other forms of overhead. That's what the court said in Missouri versus Jenkins. And the question of how, how they're billed doesn't uh, – doesn't inform the question of how you interpret the term attorney's fees. That's what the Court said in, it, in Missouri versus Jenkins and that in what it reaffirmed two years later in, in West Virginia Hospitals versus Casey. Now, let me, if I could, get to the second point, which Justice Kennedy asked me about. The second point is that the, the government's argument proves far too much, because under the Federal Circuit's theory, which the government has now adopted, the fees generated by law firm associates would also not be compensable at market rates because a much higher percentage of an associate's billed rate would also fall below the cap as compared to the senior partners in the firm. The, the, in other words, it, it doesn't help explain I'm the sorry, problem. I'm sorry.
0: Is your point there that most associates are billed at less than $125?
1: No, that's not my point, Your Honor. My point is this, that the, the, the theory of the government's argument is that you would you would be, in essence, giving too much recovery to the lower to, — to the lower billed uh, — uh, uh, billing agents, whether they be paralegals, junior associates, and so forth. And it, when you get up to the senior too, partners
0: — Too much money proportionally.
1: Proportionally, exactly. That's the argument. In, in all events, some of the, those various individuals' uh, rates will be compensated under EJA. Our point is that — it proves far too much because the junior associates are much more like the paralegals than the, 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 the senior fir- associates at the largest K Street or Wall Street law firms. And my only point, in, my only uh, submission point uh, in that regard is that it shows that the government's argument proves too much because it, it illustrates that the government's concern and the Federal Circuit's concern, the anomaly that they've pointed out, has nothing to do with the statutory term attorney fees and nothing to do with paralegals, per se, it's the phenomenon that's at work is the fact that the rate, the hyperinflation in the legal services market as a whole has outstripped Egypt. That's the phenomenon on which the Federal Circuit, in truth, was relying, even though they, 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 if, they, they if put if it para- to the paralegal
7: question. If paralegal charges are not fees but are other expenses, what would be the standard for determining at the rate at which they would be compensable—would it necessarily be cost under this statute, or would it simply be what is reasonable?
1: Well, that's that's, that's an excellent question. I think it is in part undermines the the government's position because what happened here is that the the federal circuit and the the, the board of contract appeals below said, well, it's cost to the lawyer, and we're going to do an internet search and we're going to find what paralegal salaries are, and divide it by the requisite number of hours in any year, and we're going to make it $35 an hour. And we're going to determine that's the, the cost to the law firm. But, of course, that's that's not the cost to the law firm. What about the overhead? Uh, what about the rent, utilities, and so forth? What about benefits? So what you would have is a very complex cost analysis. Now, you're suggesting, Your Honor, that that we could do it on some vague notion of reasonableness. But the problem is, is that the 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 fee-shifting statutes either look to market rate or or actual cost. But what is interesting about the actual cost argument here, and that's true across the entire range of fee-shifting statutes, well, and what's interesting about this problem is going to exist
3: anyway, isn't it? I mean, even if you don't uh, cram um, uh – power legals into the other expenses, there are going to be other expenses that are in the other no, but, expenses, but, but you're going to have to have this same problem that, about that, what about the overhead and so forth.
1: No, that is, with respect, Justice Scalia, that is not correct, because the problem here is, and I'm using your words, is that the government is cramming an in-house professional services service into a place where no court virtually in the history of American jurisprudence has ever put it.
7: Well, if it's, it, it, if it's simply reasonableness, because I don't see anything in the statute that says that all non-fee expenses are compensable at cost. If it's simply reasonableness, would it be possible to say that what would be reasonable would be a rate that preserves the ratio between attorney's fees and paralegal fees that existed at the time uh, when the statute was enacted so that you wouldn't have the problem of well, attorneys being compensated at the same rate as paralegals. L-
1: l- let me let me uh, answer that in, in, in two ways. If you were to preserve the ratio, then it seems to me that the in in many markets the paralegals are going to get uh, right near the, the the cap anyway, or you know between seventy-five and hundred dollars, because we know that many lawyers' rates are well above the cap. If you preserve that ratio, no, no, then, the then
7: ratio if if lawyers were. I know that if lawyers were compensated at $125 an hour when this was enacted, and paralegals were compensated at 75, then it would be a two-to-one ratio, and you'd preserve that.
1: Yes, you could do that, and then what you would have is just a, a static rate for for all players in the market. And there's no suggestion that Congress intended that. After First, all, I am used am the I term mistaken, prevailing
3: you, market right, rates. Uh, My mistake. You, you claim that even if they are expenses. They should, they, they should be paid for at market rate, don't Well,
1: not quite market rate, but th- this goes to the – I said I had two responses to Justice Alito's uh, question. And the, the, the problem is, is that when we talk about out-of-pocket expenses, again, which is where the government is trying to shoehorn the paralegal services, we talk about out-of-pocket expenses for the client, for the prevailing party. Expenses, whether they're out-of-pocket expenses or attorney fees, are um, – are awarded to the prevailing party, and the cost faced by the prevailing party is the cost to the prevailing party, what it paid for the paralegal services. Now, that will approximate the market rate, no question about it. It might not always be synonymous with it. Justice Alito, I am not suggesting that Congress could not have done it that way, but there is no suggestion that it did. After all, in this statute, compared to other uh, fee-shifting statutes, it pre- specifically said it wants to work at the prevailing market rate. And the only reason that in, in some markets, for some lawyers, the, the ceiling, the cap, has become a floor is because of hyperinflation in the legal services market. It has nothing to do with the compensability of paralegal services vis-à-vis junior associates, as I've mentioned. Wolfman,
2: if there's any discretion in the district judge in setting the amount of the fee and why wouldn't it be appropriate to say or oh, now there's a cap for the lawyer it's 125 dollars an hour but we know the true market rate for that lawyer is 200 dollars we're going to do the same thing with the paralegal the true market rate is x and we're going to knock it down So that it will match the knockdown for the lawyer well the
1: the the reason for that uh is uh is that there there is no suggestion at all that that's what was being contemplated in this statute and that may be the way that if you had seen this phenomenon that's developed which again is hyperinflation in the legal services market you might have written it that way it's true that the courts have discretion there's always a reasonableness factor but the over Riding factor is the market rate. The, this the Congress said prevailing market rate, and to me that would be outside the bounds of any discretion. But isn't that had it been likely
2: ordered. that when Congress said that it was not thinking of paralegals?
1: No, I think it, it, I don't think with, with respect. I don't think that's the question. It going that takes us back to Missouri versus Jenkins and what the court said there is that you have this word attorney's fee, and the way of thinking of attorney's fees is to include everything that goes into the labor of the attorney uh, that ultimately gets billed to the client, and that paralegal services are an aspect of that. Two years later, in West Virginia University Hospitals, the, the Court made, made essentially the, the same point uh, again, which is that, that at the time that all these fee-shifting statutes were, were passed – uh, paralegal services, to the extent that they existed, uh, were, were traditionally subsumed within the, the lawyer's rate. And so that once law firms started billing for themselves … I'm sorry,
0: what, traditionally subsumed in the lawyer's rate, are you suggesting when this statute was passed they weren't billed separately to the client? No,
1: I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying it, traditionally, well before they were passed, that they were subsumed to the market rate. There, there came to be a tradition. Roughly in the 70s and early 80s, for the separate billing, and what the court held emphatically in Missouri versus Jenkins was that the, the, the separate billing didn't uh, tell you anything about whether there were attorney fees. Let me, let me, if I could extend my answer a little bit, you have to appreciate ex- what the government's argument is here. The government's argument is that if the paralegal fee, the paralegal services, are subsumed within the lawyer's rate, if there were a law firm out there that still didn't do the separate billing. That would be compensable as an attorney's fees when billed within the lawyer's rates. But if they're billed separately under EGIA, the, the, the government's position is they're not compensable at oh, Of course, at they're, rates.
3: They're, that's no loss to the government because uh, when you uh, put it into the lawyer's rate, you, you hit the ceiling for the lawyer's rate that much sooner.
1: I, that is true, but See, well, that, was that was not true in 1980, and that's the, the, the point we're making here. And it's true that may not be. In this day and age, Sorry.
5: Why wasn't it true in 1980? I, I, you, you simply mean in 1980, the two together wouldn't have gotten as high as the cap?
1: Absolutely. If you, in in most markets um, uh, for most lawyers, and we 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 deal with this extensively in our brief. We cite case after the case to this effect. And I think, and I don't mean to be glib here. I think the way to put this that in 1980 and 1985. The, the statute covered virtually all lawyers' fees uh, ra- rather comfortably on Main Street, if not necessarily on K Street and Wall Street. I mean, and that's what the statute was was, was for. I know it's hard to appreciate that now when we see, uh, you know, very high rates from the large law firms. But put yourself back in that perspective, which is in, in that vantage point, which we try to do uh, in our brief.
6: Ass- and, assume that our decision will in part drive the market. Either way, what, what we do will affect the way paralegals are used, the way the billing is done. Uh, if that is true, uh, is there some utility in simply following the EJA so we give a consistent signal to the market, and then if Congress wants to change it, it can? I'm, I'm not sure
1: I, mean, I understand I mean, the
6: question. I than follow EJA. I mean, follow 1988.
1: Well, I think. Paula
6: Jenkins. Paula
1: Jenkins. I, well, I certainly think there's utility in doing that. And, and Congress can revisit this. The difficulty is that Congress is, has not revisited and the Congress could revisit this and make, uh, you know, I think it's, it is clear right now that the, the purposes of the statute are not being fully carried out because, again, of the hyperinflation in legal services. Are, are there
6: some disutilities from an economic standpoint in having two structures, Jenkins for one kind of cases, EJ and A, in the other cases, as the government wants?
1: Is, is there some? Are there some,
6: dis- are there some disadvantages well, the, to the, the system?
1: To, I, of course, we don't think there are, but the, to be candid, the 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 Federal Circuit pointed to to one purported disadvantage. The Federal Circuit claimed that to the extent that there was some incentive that would be driven by a a contrary decision, it would be that lawyers uh, would um, shunt off more work than is efficient to paralegals. I
0: I saw that analysis. This Act only applies when the government's position is not substantially justified. People are not going to structure their billing arrangements assuming the government's position is not even going to be substantial.
1: I certainly agree that it is unlikely. But as we point — very unlikely, I agree with that, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. But there is another point that I I would make that we we cover quite extensively in our brief, which is that — which is that uh, — I think you have to step back and think about that for a second, what the Federal Circuit did. The notion that lawyers are going to shunt off work to paralegals that they wouldn't otherwise have, there are — runs headlong into both — Economic and ethical constraints on the profession economic because if that was occurring i e people were lawyers were giving uh, paralegals work that they could not uh, sensibly do, clients would would one insist that work not be allocated like that, or two take their business elsewhere that 's the, ec- the economic constraints if in other words, the whole
0: premise that point Make some assumptions about the relative abilities, say, of junior associates and senior paralegals, that I'm not sure are well founded.
1: <laughs> well, uh, m- m- Mr. Chief Justice, I will. Uh, I-, I believe that you have greater experience on that than I do. Um, but, uh, but the- I think the-, the other answer to that is the, the ethical constraints. Even if there were not economic constraints, I mean, as we pointed in our brief, sure, the paralegal profession is, is uh, has become an impressive one. They do a lot of things that lawyers used to do. No question. But a lawyer can't shun off work that they can't handle because there are ethical constraints. I can't, for instance, give uh, uh, a paralegal, uh, say, uh, the responsibility for — principal responsibility for writing an appellate brief. I could not or would not do that because they can't do that, generally speaking, because of their, their, their training and experience. So I just think that, that falls apart. And as you say, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the fact that — uh of the substantial justification defense and other reasons as well it's unlikely uh and this gets back to uh justice kennedy's question it's unlikely that law firms will structure their practices and businesses around uh this problem the real problem though is is not an attack on the on the, on the government fisc as we point out in our brief the 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 uh impact on the public fisc of uh, for rejecting the Federal Circuit's decision would be negligible. It, it's worth noting, though, that the Federal Circuit's decision would have an impact on clients most affected by it. Three groups comprise the great majority of EJA applicants. Small businesses like Richland, disabled veterans, and disabled Social Security claimants. In all three situations, clients will lose if paralegal services are awarded at the cost of those services to their lawyers. Um, for the latter two groups, veterans and Social Security claimants, Federal law in fact requires that EJ, the EJA fee be paid to the claimant. So although it makes economic sense for paralegals to work on significant aspects of Social Security and veterans' cases, and that's set out at some length in the amicus brief of the National Association of Legal Assistants, the claimants will lose those fees under the government's is view that of
0: EJA. Is that pertinent on the cap questions we've been discussing, too? I mean, if. You're representing a disabled veteran. Uh, is a lawyer typically charging more than $125? No,
1: uh, this is how it works, and that's why I said Federal law uh, provides for this. And let, let me uh, give you the citations. They're also set forth in footnote two of the, this Court's decision in Scarborough. The way uh, the Social Security and v- Veterans uh, situations work, and again, they p- comprise the majority of these cases, is that the Federal law allows the uh, lawyer to take a contingent fee out of the back benefits, not to exceed 20 and 25 percent of the veterans or Social Security uh, claimants' back benefits, respectively. But then what federal law also provides, and the, the citations are Public Law 9980, Section 3, and Public Law 102-572, Section 506 C, federal law provides that to the extent that there's an EJF fee, the lawyer may not double dip and has to re- send that fee directly back to the client so for these relatively impecunious claimants essentially chopping the, the the paralegal fee in third or in half or something like that would have a real impact on claimants it's i, hard I to
8: know be. no one else not i won't say no one else but not everyone else places the importance on legislative history that i do mm-hmm. but i do And I saw here that the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee considered all these arguments. They wrote a report, and they sided with the government. Well, And I know it was, but it doesn't matter to me that it was on a bill that was later uh, not passed, uh, and then, uh, unless there's something different for that reason, because in my own mind, I'm thinking there were a group of people on the committee. They went through the issue. Uh, They uh, reflect the views of their principles. Uh, They work it out. And unless something changed that makes me think that isn't the working out of it, uh, I would put a lot of weight on it. Well, and now you're going to tell me what there is, I hope.
1: I am certainly going to do that, uh, Justice Breyer. Um, the, the first thing is, and I, I do want to point out for the benefit of the other members of the Court, that, um, is that the, that piece of legislative history accompanied vetoed legislation. But, but let me also say that, and we explain this at some length, uh, both in our opening and reply briefs, that the government relies on a snippet saying that paralegals, uh, paralegal services, uh, can be awarded, and then it says, "paren at at cost." There, but there are a number of other aspects of that same piece of legislative history that point in exactly the opposite direction in terms of market rate recovery. And in fact, the court cites, excuse me, the committee cites a case from the Sixth Circuit the North Cross case, in which paralegal services were awarded at market rates.
0: And, of course, they may mean, may have meant cost to the client.
1: That, that is and that is that was my next point, Mr. Chief Justice, which is that um, it, it said at cost, but at whose cost? And the problem here is that this fee-shifting statute and every other fee-shifting statute, of which I am aware, uh, awards a fee to the prevailing party. The purpose of the statute is not to — Enrich lawyers, the purpose of the statute is to uh, provide incentive for lawyers to handle cases on behalf of clients. Unless the Court has any further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, counsel. Mr. Yang?
9: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. And may it please the Court. EJA authorizes federal agencies to award two distinct categories of litigation expenses against the United States. fees and other expenses. The most natural reading of attorney's fees is one that embraces an attorney's time, payments for an attorney's time, whereas the broader term other expenses naturally encompasses outlays that are paid by an attorney during its representation of a client, including the cost of paralegals whose work may be necessary for the preparation of a client's case. Congress recognized this distinction between attorney's fees and other expenses when it enacted EJA in 1980. The relevant Senate report, like EJA's House report, stated that the ceiling on, quote, attorney's fees. You say the relevant relevant
0: one was, of course, on a legislation that wasn't passed, right?
9: Uh, Actually, this is even before EJA lapsed the first time. This is upon EJA's initial enactment in 1980. There was a Senate report and a House report. And both have functionally identical language. The Senate report states that, quote, attorney's fees relates only to the compensation of lawyers themselves. And then goes on to explain that costs connected with their representation of a particular interest in a proceeding is not affected by the limitation that is the cap on attorney's fees. When Congress then reenacted EJA after its repeal, Congress again made clear, and this is the report that, Mr. Chief Justice, you were referring to, made clear that the other expenses of EGIF fees includes an attorney's out-of-pocket expenses and that those out-of-pocket expenses were illustrated by the specific example of paralegal time being reimbursed at cost.
2: What is cost? One could say, I'm going to look at the Internet and come up with $35 an hour. Or you could say, in the case of a paralegal, there's a part of the overhead. There's the fringe benefits. So just giving the hourly rate is deceptive of what the actual cost is to the law firm, because the law firm has to to add on to determine what, in fact, it's paying for the paralegal, the fringe benefits, and part of the overhead.
9: Justice Ginsburg, the government agrees that more than simply salary would be reimbursable as cost. Um, And I think the appropriate way to calculate costs in the context of paralegals would be uh, would parallel how the government calculates its cost for attorneys when the government seeks attorney's fees. And what the government does is it uses salary as a baseline And then adds uh, for the government, it's 29 or approximately 29 percent of salary for other benefits.
0: Well, but it might be quite different for a private practitioner. Your benefits for health care are probably cost you a lot less than private practice. And doesn't that make? The paralegal fee is quite different from the other items of expenses that are listed. You know, uh, expert witnesses, you get a bill. That's how much it costs the lawyer. Studies, analysis, engineering report, you don't have to figure overhead benefits with respect to any of those. All of a sudden you throw in uh, another item, paralegal costs, you put those under cost, and now you've got to go through this elaborate calculation that is going to be not worth it, almost, for, for a typical firm representing a small client.
9: Mr. Chief Justice, I'm not sure that I agree with some of the premises that you had. First, with respect to the uh, analysis and reports and such, those are not always things that are done outside a law firm. Uh, The statutory text, in fact, allows the reimbursement of costs for any study, analysis, or report, test, or project. And it's not limited to things that are done outside of a firm. It may often Well, what's it, I
0: mean, most firms, uh, an engineering report would be outside the.
9: Perhaps an engineering report, except for maybe some uh, intellectual property. No, but it, firms, it but. seems to me the question
6: is a valid one. You're, you're running away from the question.
9: Well, uh, and I, and
6: I'll, I'll let you answer it. It uh, suggests this further inquiry. Uh, suppose that a solo practitioner knows that a paralegal in another firm is very good at this, and he asks the other lawyer, may I use your paralegal, and he just uh, sends that lawyer the bill. What, how would that be, uh, billed under your view?
9: Well, there's, there's now two questions in the air. Um, well, well but, you can but they, both, they, both apply to out, they
6: both apply to outside experts.
9: Well, when a paralegal is outsourced, which is – your question, there's two potential situations. One may be that the paralegal is less expensive, um, and if that were the case, you would think that firms would normally outsource their paralegals if it's less expensive to obtain them from the outside than the inside. No, oh, but that
0: so. wasn't Justice Kennedy's question. His was the up- outsourced paralegal is better at the particular task.
9: Well, if the outsourced paralegal is better, it may be that the actual cost to the firm is the cost that the firm pays for that paralegal um, in, to the third party,
5: well, in that in that case, it would bill the paralegal the same way it would uh, it would bill. I take it uh, uh, the expense of, let's say, having water tested in a pollution case. It would it would, I take it, it would bill the client
9: dollar for dollar what it had to pay. In fact, that's right, and not and, and add I, profit onto that that paralegal. They, they don't add a
5: profit, and they they don't add a profit onto. Uh, to to um, travel expenses and things like that right and so that in each if that is so in each case cost means cost to the client uh and you're coming up with a new category uh of expense which is cost to someone else uh and and why should there be a subcategory of expense in which cost does not mean cost to the client when every other category of expense
9: does mean cost to the client? Justice Souter, every other category does not mean cost to the client. In fact, Aegis specifically provides for fees, that the fees are based on the, re- the prevailing market rates for similar services. Because there's a, there's a separate provision for fees. That's correct, Your Honor, but... In that context, uh, a client needs not incur any legal fees, have any obligation to pay any fees, and courts routinely award EJA fees when there's been no cost paid by the client in fees. And similarly, even if the client has no obligation ultimately to pay the cost in those circumstances, where, for instance, a firm is uh, providing pro bono services or a legal services organization is providing pro bono services to a client, the client does not have to incur or pay the cost. The question is whether those costs have been ultimately incurred, and it's been incurred at the rate that the firm has incurred the cost on behalf of the client.
4: May I ask this question? Maybe this is just the <coughs> same question just as Kennedy asked, but I want to be sure of your, your answer. Suppose you had an independent firm of paralegals. I don't know whether the market contains them, but it surely could. A firm that they're all paralegals, and they then bill the law firm at their own hourly rate and then the law firm, in turn, bills the client. In that situation, would the market rate of the independent firm of paralegals govern?
9: It would be the rate that is ultimately paid. If you're outsourcing the paralegals, it would be the rate paid by the firm for those paralegals. Now, it may also be, so, for instance. So is,
4: do I understand the government's position that the, the, out, the result is different if a firm uses its own paralegals as opposed to outsourcing them?
9: The result is not different, Your, Your Honor. The result is the same in the sense that the firm's cost.
4: No, but, but under my example, they would be paying the market rate for, for para, paralegals, and I think you say that they could be reimbursed for that.
9: It wouldn't necessarily be the market rate, it would be what they, they're paying, which may
4: well reflect the market well, rate. Well, if they're in the they're in the market to make business, I presume the paralegals would, would charge the going rate. If, it may if be, they did. Assume they also charge the market
9: rate. It may be, but if it's the market rate, there would presumably be no incentive for a firm to outsource its paralegal but, but
6: again, you're not answering the hypothetical. Let's assume two cases. Case A, you hire an outside paralegal at eighty five dollars an hour. He's outside. He's independent. He's just like the expert engineer in the chief justice question, $85 an hour. Case two, it's your own paralegal. The prevailing rate for which you charge general clients is $85 an hour. Why should there be a difference?
9: There should be a difference, Your Honor, because with respect to outsourced firms, there is no concern that a firm is going to add — well, if the firm is only going to bill at its cost, the firm is not going to add additional profit. To the outsourced paralegal. So, if, for instance, the firm paid eighty-five dollars, under our view, the firm could not turn around and charge ninety-five dollars to the client. Likewise, and the reason that this is important in under your context, view, they
6: can't even charge eighty-five dollars an hour.
9: Well, 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 that's that's correct. If their cost actual cost would be less in house, and the reason that that's important is because in Egypt, unlike Section nineteen eighty eight, there are several statutory differences. One, uh, Egypt provides for other expenses. So the term attorney's fees is not the only term that needs to be construed by the Court. Other expenses needs to be construed in a manner that gives it meaningful effect. And Congress recognized, again, in the legislative history, to the extent you could disagree on the, the meaning of other expenses, Congress was very clear, both in 1980 and then again in 1984, that other expenses attorney's fees do not include things that attorneys pay and only compensates attorneys for their own hourly rate. And the reason that the fee cap is important is because EJA, as this Court recognized in Underwood, is not intended to be fully compensatory. If the
2: cap that, were — I know you said that a few times, and you have authority for it, but it seems to me odd. If you look at 1988, and it's attorney's fees and costs — and costs is very limited in, in, in the statute in 1920 — and if you have attorney's fees and other expenses, other expenses is a much larger category than costs within 1988. So I, I would think that, well, each is the more compensatory because it allows for more items.
9: Uh, Justice Ginsburg, under Jenkins' rationale, Jenkins recognized that when there's not another, at least another box of other expenses, in a statute which was intended to be fully compensatory that attorney's fees necessarily must include compensation for all types of costs that a lawyer might incur in the, the presentation representation of a client. That works for Section 1988. But if that rationale were applied to the EJA context, if attorney's fees were given the same meaning in EJA, there's little or no work for other expenses to be done in in the statute because already you have pushed all of those expenses into the box of attorney's fees. And so your
0: this question only arises when the position of your client was not substantially justified. Now under those circumstances it was designed to some extent to penalize you because because of that fact. Why should we adopt a construction that in effect penalizes uh, the client who has had to face the federal government when the federal government's position was not substantially justified—they're going to have to pay the paralegal fees at market rates, but they're only going to get compensation at uh, at cost. Uh,
9: Mr. Chief Justice, the the reason that you would adopt our construction is because Congress is balancing more than the intent to provide compensation for uh, prevailing parties in Egypt. It was also intending to balance the effect on the Federal Fisk and limit the Government's exposure as a means of passing the Act. One of the no, it's kind of
0: a stretch to suggest in a situation where they pass a law that only applies to individuals or small businesses, where they've put a cap in and so on, that another way they were going to prevent a damage to the FISC was to treat paralegal uh, expenses as cost rather than at market rate. I-, I suspect that was not foremost in their mind.
9: Well, Mr. Chief Justice, I think legislative history illustrates that, in fact, paralegals. Well, that assumes when they
0: said cost that they meant cost to the firm as opposed to cost to the client. And that, I think, is entirely uh, an open question.
9: Well, it, it, the relevant page of the legislative history in 1984 that you're talking about explains that. Congress wanted to adopt the views of the Administrative Conference and its model rules, and goes on to quote well, the Administrative not to, Conference. not to
0: belabor the point. It meant that the people who drafted the Senate report may have meant that.
9: Well, that's a problem with all legislative history. I don't um, think
0: it is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I
9: think it's a people feature people in all Congress who hire their staffs <laughs>
8: pay attention to what the staff say. In precisely the same way, do we any know other what the, executive
0: do but, we know what the president 's yeah. view was on that question when he signed the legislation and the law, which what he was required to do because, before it came law, the and pres- which he did not do under the prior bill?
9: The president did not express a view, but what we do know is that the legislative history in one thousand nine hundred and eighty four dealt with language that was identical to that ultimately passed by the, uh, by the Congress and signed by the president, and that legislative history explains and quotes the administrative conference that uh, that says that what should be awarded is an award of reasonable expenses of the attorney. Do you know any other
3: case where we've used, I mean, it just gets worse and worse. Do you know any other case where we've used the legislative history of a
9: vetoed bill
3: Uh, to determine the meaning of a later bill that was not vetoed?
9: uh, Yes, Justice Scalia. This Court has twice cited in unanimous opinions the same report that we cite here one of which was in the Gene opinion. In fact, the Court not only cited the the Senate report, but also cited the House report to the 1984 When was that? Gene. Pardon my —
3: No, don't — never mind. Don't don't take — don't I mean, that wouldn't be surprising. Gene was 1990. That wouldn't be
8: surprising because you have, in fact, very complex bills that have 14 sections, and section the bill could have vetoed, been vetoed because of a problem with Section 14, and then repassed without Section 14.
9: And in in fact, which case,
8: the legislative history for the other 13 sections would be highly illuminating.
9: And, in fact, Congress recognized mean. that, Justice Breyer, when it reenacted, uh re-addressed the bill in 1985, the relevant legislative history specifically references the bill that existed before, that it was reported the by the Senate. question I had in
8: respect to this statute certainly is, is that my impression, and here looks, I'd like to know how they bill secretaries' times. I'd like to know how they bill uh, uh, rent. And my thought is, and I want to be either verified or or told I'm wrong and explain it, uh, that when you have no cap, uh, the lawyer and the client want to shove everything possible into the rubric attorney's fees, including the kitchen sink, if the plumber is there in the kitchen of the law firm. That's fine. No problem. There's no other way to get paid for it. But where you have a cap, you should shove everything the other side if expenses are going to be paid for, because that cap means that the lawyer will not get his full payback. And therefore, the lower the cap, the more you want to be sure it's covering only that lawyer's time, and everything else goes into expense so that you can pay the lawyer adequately and he'll recover his expenses elsewhere. Was that the theory of this bill? Is there any evidence that that was the theory? If you did it that way, would anything get
9: mixed up? Well, the theory of the bill was that attorney's fees would be based at prevailing market rates, and that prevailing market rates would embody a certain set of costs that might be reimbursed. I, I would think that the prevailing practice is not to uh, bill separately for the kitchen sink, but as uh, the Court explained in Missouri versus Jenkins, um, Missouri's analysis would extend to your hypothetical, Justice Breyer, explains that uh, reasonable attorney's fees had to cover all kinds of costs, including the costs of secretaries, messengers, librarians, or janitors who might well be cleaning the kitchen sink.
2: AM I right that when this language first came in, this is in, in relation to Justice Breyer's question, there was no cap. When did the, when was the cap put on?
9: The cap uh, in Egypt was imposed uh, from the very beginning. It was. Yeah, it was. It was uh, in the Senate bill. Um, it was It was removed by subcommittee, reinserted by the full Judiciary Committee, passed the Senate, came over to the House, and continued on for passage in 1980.
2: But it's a, it would be a lot of weight to put on three little words, billed at cost. We just read those words. It could be the cost to the client, the cost to the law firm. And then you'd have to go to this further document, the administrative conference doc. Um, it's it's rather uh, thin, I think.
9: Well. Justice Ginsburg, we're relying not only on the 1984, but also on the 1980 legislative history, which, although it does not specifically refer to paralegals, explains that in connection with the term attorney's fees and the ceiling on attorney's fees, and I'll quote again from the Senate report, which was the first, the ceiling on attorney's fees relates only to the compensation of lawyers themselves. And then goes on to say that does not include other costs connected with their representation of a particular interest in a proceeding. And when Congress did that, it specifically recognized that it was taking a different approach than that taken in other fee-shifting statutes. The very next sentence explains that the Committee notes that this section is not intended to limit or affect the computation of reasonable attorney's fees under any other provision of law, and gave as an example the Civil Rights Act, but that is Section 1988. So, Congress knew from the very beginning that its treatment of attorney's fees as being limited only to attorneys and the larger, more capacious category of other expenses, as capturing all other costs that an attorney might incur in the representation of a client, was one that was both different from other statutes and one that was intended by Congress. And it's reflected not only by the legislative history, but again, by the fee caps. The fee caps, I believe you started here were specifically designed and set by reference to attorney's rates the exceptions to the fee caps against specifically reference attorneys there's an exception that you can exceed the fee cap when there's a limited availability of the attorneys qualified for the proceedings involved and it would be anomalous in that context where congress has paid particular attention to the billing rates of attorneys set the cap based on attorney's rates with no reference to paralegals, to may assume back, that Congress
4: intended May I go back to the point, that I think you were cut off before you went into the full legislative history. I'm still concerned about the argument that even if they're not fees but rather costs, that the costs should be those that are billed to the client. And you, you, you think there's some conclusive answer in the legislative history that that's not the case.
9: Well, the legislative history, when you, again, if you look to what Congress was talking about, both the administrative conference rules and the quotation of the administrative conference. Which
4: took place when? About,
9: this was the 1984.
4: At that time, were they billing uh, 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 paralegal fees uh, at cost to the client? Did, was it?
9: In was, fact, Your Honor, there was a dispute. The, the, the legislative history speaks to the controversy that evolved regarding the whether uh, other expenses of the term — would include more than what was specifically enumerated in the statute. And what we cite to in our uh, brief as a footnote at page uh, 28, footnote 12, there was a dispute. Several courts had concluded that paralegals were reimbursed at cost. Um, and in fact, the North Cross decision, which the Committee report specifically references, uh, d- uh, concluded that it was cost to the attorney, as this Court Uh, recognized in Jenkins. Footnote 7 of Jenkins discusses the the North Cross decision and explains that North Cross awarded out-of-pocket expenses for attorney's fees at the cost to the attorney. And so when you take that controversy, which had evolved regarding how you compensate uh, these other expenses, and specifically paralegal expenses, along with Congress's statement that it intended to compensate out-of-pocket expenses incurred with connection to a case, The Model Rules and North Cross, when you combine that with the statement that paralegals are to be compensated at cost, it seems clear to us that Congress is intending that in contrast to attorney's fees, which have a profit element embedded in them and a profit element capped by the fee cap that Congress imposed in 1980, that when you read together, it seems fairly clear to us that Congress intended Yes, but every every
4: expense that's reimbursed at cost has a profit element for whoever performed the service. But when
9: it's it within the, in in the control of the firm, I? when it's within the control of the firm, there's a particular danger that the firm can inflate its own costs, whereas when it's going out to the market, of course, it's not going to control the profits. No,
0: well, but uh, maybe this is the same question Justice Breyer asked, but I haven't — I didn't grasp the answer. Under your system, it would make sense for lawyers to charge separately for photocopy services, uh, telephone services, uh, so on, because then they're not going to be subject to the attorney fee cap. And they may think, look, the difference between cost and market rate is relatively small. The difference between our hourly rate and $125 is large.
9: You're asking about the incentives that firms might have.
0: Well, I'm just saying if we adopt your position, um, isn't it going to be, I guess, worse for your client because uh, firms will, as, as I've been told firms sometimes do, uh, charge separately for things at a higher rate than their cost. They'll charge a higher rate for photocopy services because they try to factor into it overhead and things like that.
9: Right. Than and cost. perhaps profit. Um, we don't believe it's actually going to change any practices because, Ultimately, when you're looking at what costs are reimbursable under EJA, it has to be costs that are not traditionally already paid for in the attorney's fees. So you have to look not for the, to the practice of the specific firm that's at issue. You have to look at the prevailing well, I would say
0: that it's. I would say that it's now traditional for firms to charge, say, more for their photocopy services than it costs them.
9: Well, if that's the case under our reading, of course, we would, we would say that, that that is not – a type of expense that was contemplated by EJA because Congress already provided for profits that attorneys get from representing a party within the attorney fee and capped that. The the whole idea of a cap is to limit the reimbursement that a firm might get from EJA below what the prevailing market rates for the services would be. If the, the, the prevailing market rates were below the cap, the cap never comes into play. The only reason for that cap is to limit compensation below market rates. And it would be anomalous to allow — The cap doesn't apply to expenses,
4: does it? I, I didn't — The cap does not apply to reimbursement of uh, expenses
9: at cost. Precisely, because in our view, expenses are at cost, and it is not — you don't have the same danger of having firms embedding profit within their it own rates. It seems rate. to me
4: just the opposite, as the, as the Chief Justice suggests. It seems to me you're creating an incentive for the firms to — to charge as much as they can, I mean, un- under market rates, for everything other than the, the, uh, the time of the lawyer himself.
9: But again, and under our view, if they were to, if a firm were to charge, say, $0.50 cents for a photocopy, and it only cost 10 or $0.15 cents for that photocopy, under our view, the firm would only be reimbursed for the $0.15. Cents. There's not an incentive to bill the client for anything more, because no, under the
4: cost of- could reasonably interpret to include overhead. It's not just the paper and the copying time.
9: Overhead, we don't believe is — fairly attributable to a particular case, and, in fact, Congress was specific about this particular point on overhead in the legislative history.
0: Well, I think you missed my point. It was even if you're right, 50 cents and they only can charge 15 cents, they have an incentive to separately charge for photocopying because they get the uh, 15 cents, and otherwise if they're, it's going to, they're going to lose it over the cap if you say, no, that's part of the attorney's fee.
9: I guess you're right. To some extent, there would be an incentive to shift out costs, even though it would be less of an incentive than shifting out costs. Plus profit, but the reason that um, that the uh, we the reason that we think that uh, that's a bit different is because again Congress intended for the profit-making part of a um, an attorney's compensation to come out of the attorney's fees and then are capped, and there's very little incentive to uh, to shift out fees unless the market itself is already doing that, and if the market itself is already billing for photocopies, then that 's what you 're going to get, even if you didn 't separately charge for photocopies as part of your rate, you could bill under Egypt. the market is providing for photocopies billing, being billed separately. you could simply pr- uh, submit a request for photocopies
3: when you have a ch- you could submit it uh, in a letter i 've looked in your brief i can 't find this, this gene case that you mentioned. I, uh, on use of vetoed i have a certain morbid interest in it
9: <laughs> it's at four ninety six u s one fifty four and uh it's i believe it's cited it's uh, commissioner i n s versus gene uh, and i apologize if it's not there, but i uh, i thought it was yeah no it's, it's all right to uh,
2: right. I'd like to go back to the question that justice. Kennedy asked um, of Mr. Wolfman, isn't there, uh, doesn't it make sense to take a word like attorney's fees and like the word discrimination, we have many different anti-discrimination statutes, but there has been uh, an attempt to give that word discrimination the same meaning in all those statutes and here the term attorney's fees if it means that includes paralegal in 1988 why not say every time attorney's fees comes up that's what it's going to mean
9: as a general rule uh, in fee shifting statutes that are like section 1988 that is in fact the rule but the rule that similar words are given a similar meaning readily yields when there's indication that Congress did not intend the same to apply here. And, in fact, for instance, in the Fogarty versus Fantasy case, the Court specifically rejected the approach of adopting uh, the understanding of reasonable attorney's fees applied in other fee-shifting statutes because it found that the policy and legislative history of the Copyright Act required, or at least suggested, that Congress intended something else. And here, not only do we have a different legislative history, we have fundamentally different statutory texts. There is a second category of other expenses that must be given uh, meaning in conjunction with attorney's fees. Well, on that point,
7: does does the statute say that all non-fee expenses are compensable at cost, or are you arguing that the work that's done by paralegals is a study analysis project? Uh,
9: It's either a — it can be a study or an analysis or at least analogous to that, that type of provision.
7: Uh, um, wh- which is it? Is it a study analysis or project? That seems like a strained
9: way of describing it. it can be. It can be a project. For instance, in this case, the paralegal compiled the relevant information regarding how much wages needed to be uh, develop, uh, repaid uh, on the merits of the case, how much taxes needed to be reimbursed. That could under- be understood as a project, particularly when Congress has modified it with any uh, the word "any" before council. There,
0: there are occasions, aren't there, when the the government is entitled to attorneys' fees?
9: There are occasions.
0: Do you know how you bill paralegal times and time in those situations?
9: We often don't bill them separately.
0: You, you often don't bill them
9: separately. I, 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 I asked this question. I'm, I've not been able to determine that we ever bill paralegal time separately. Normally, we're. Like any other litigant in a normal fee shifting statute, that would simply pro- provide for attorney's fees. And again, as w- the way the government calculates it is based on its overall cost for benefits, it ends up being 29 percent of salary. Uh, there's a attorney fee, that benefit percentage, and a small overhead charge as well for the attorney's fee, but not separately for paralegals.
0: Thank you, Mr. Yang. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Wolfman, you have four minutes remaining.
9: Thank you, Mr.
1: Chief Justice. Um, want to start where the discussion left off, but it harkens back to something that Mr. Yang said towards the beginning of his argument. He said that, um, that if the federal circuit weren't affirmed, that there would be no meaning to the term "other expenses," but that's just not so. It would begin to lose its meaning. It means things like travel long-distance phone, copying the types of things we think of as out-of-pocket expenses. (laughs) The problem here is they're shoehorning, uh, the government is shoehorning what is always conceived of as an in-house professional service, as an out-of-pocket expense, and it just does not fit there. Let me turn to the legislative history, and I'd like to do two things with that before I close. The first is, let's presuppose that it should be given some weight, as Justice uh, Breyer has suggested, And the problem is that that it it just doesn't bear the weight that the government gives the report. If you look at, and this is discussed at, at length at page 12 of our reply brief, let's turn, for instance, to the Administrative Conference report. Here's what it says. It's at 46 Federal Register 32913. It says that, with regard to expenses, they should be compensable whenever the lawyer, quote, ordinarily charges clients separately for such expenses. That's the situation today with paralegal expenses. Then the, it's true that the ACUS, the Administrative Conference, did not issue a hard and fast rule with respect to paralegal expenses. But that, of course, is because the market wasn't uniform at that time as it is today. Today it's nearly ubiquitous that that paralegal services are, are, are uh, separately billed. But listen to what the, court, the ACUS did say. They, didn't, they declined to issue a rule because, quote, practices with respect to charging clients for paralegal time vary depending on locality and field of practice. But that statement reflects exactly our position, that the rule the Court embraced in Jenkins is that the compensability of paralegal services should replicate prevailing practices in the market. Now, let me just end by, uh, uh, by uh, on this note, if there is also the question raised about whether you should give any weight to this, this report at all. We say that you should not, for the reasons essentially uh, in, in Justice Scalia's last question on that topic, but we do uh, we do talk about why the gene decision's use of that report does not bear the weight that the government gives us. and that gives it. And that's on pages 13 and 14 of our brief, our reply brief, and the reason is is because. Gene, no one brought to the court's attention in any of the briefs the problem that the, the legislative history accompanied vetoed legislation. When it was brought to the court's attention in the Scarborough case three years ago, neither the, the majority opinion nor the dissent cited that report. Well,
0: but I, Justice Breyer is correct. Isn't he that there was no reason for? Uh, the Senate to sort of redo a report that they had already
1: done on a bill that was well, substantially I, I, identical. I, that might be true in some circumstances, but that's not what happened in 1985. There was an extensive House report accompanying that legislation. There was no Senate report. The
0: House no, report — there was no Senate report because they had done it just the previous I, I year. I think
1: not, Your Honor. There were some other things taken up in that House report, and the House report is quite extensive and it says nothing. It's silent on the question of paralegal services. Look, look let, me, let me just say as I close that um, — may I answer the question? Let me just say as I close that, that — um, if the Court wishes to look at that report, at, at the very best for the government, it's a wash. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.